place-based education is is so synchronous to being focused on the learner. Um, that's a super important component is that the learner matters and that if we can teach learners to understand their worlds, which is fundamentally the idea of school, and, and then go make a difference, which is we sometimes miss in our schooling. I think oftentimes we miss in our schooling is that kids can be change makers. We don't have to tell them how to do or, or what avenue they have to do that in, but we have to give them all the tools to do that. listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today we're sharing the second podcast in our series on place-based education that Carrie Schneider recorded on location at Teton Science Schools in Wyoming and Idaho. The teachers and leaders at Teton Science Schools are Getting Smart's partners in a place-based education campaign that we're calling Learning and the Power of Place. If you haven't had a chance to check out the first podcast in this series, be sure to give it a listen. It's Season 2, Episode 16, Experiencing the Place-Based Education at Teton Science Schools. It's a really cool audio field trip through the four campuses of Teton Science Schools that we think does a great job of describing what place-based education is. As a follow-up to that one, this PBE podcast podcast is really focused on the implementation of place-based education. So let's start with Carrie's conversations with Nate McLennan, April Landale, and Nancy Lang. Nate's the VP for Education and Innovation at TSS and was part of the founding faculty, then head of school at TSS Journeys Schools. He's been part of the TSS family since 2001 and was Carrie's tour guide for her visit. As you'll hear from Nate, April, and Nancy, TSS has real expertise in how to implement PBE based on their work with educators from all over the country and all over the world. We're excited to share that expertise with all of our listeners. Science Schools is a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, we are all about how do you connect people to place uh, through science, education, and stewardship. Um, we've been around for 50 years. So we serve about 15,000 people a year. And fundamentally, uh, we believe that when you connect uh, people to place through education, um, that you increase student engagement or learner engagement, you increase student outcomes. And I think most importantly, you then uh, increase their capacity to make change happen in a place because they understand it and then they can learn how to make a difference in that place. And that for us is place-based education. So that's why we exist. Um, we have a framework that we use and we really focus on how do you teach students to inquire into their worlds uh, through a scientific lens. It doesn't have to be the discipline of science, but with the rigor of science. And then we use design thinking to think about how do they find solutions when they discover what they're going to find. So that's a framework that we use. Um, we support it with three competencies. One is this idea of community leadership. We believe that all students of all ages should be leaders, and they, if they're gonna make a difference, they need to lead. Second is through an intentional culture. So culture matters here, um, and any organization that we work with, whether internally or externally, we believe that developing culture is important. Um, and then the approach. The approach is uh, this idea of place-based, um, the idea that uh, experiential doing rather than actually receiving makes a difference. Um, and we, we, that ultimately manifests itself in a, to a bunch of program areas, and they sit at the intersection of field-based education, classroom-based education, and uh, teacher development. And so uh, on the teacher development side, we have a teacher learning center, which works with schools around the country and a little bit internationally, uh, either on-site here on one of our four campuses or out at their school sites um, to do trainings, 400-plus teachers a year. Um, we have a graduate program that's in, it's been in existence for over 20 years, 
and the graduate program is affiliated with the University of Wyoming and some other uh, universities, and they get a, a half of a master's degree, and then they finish at one of these regional universities. Is the master's degree specifically in place-based education? Master's degree at this moment is in uh, science teaching education, um, and but really the focus is on place-based education. So while it has an ecology focus um, it, it, and a science focus, they really get an understanding of uh, no matter what discipline they're teaching, because we'll get folks that are not science folks that come in, and they're really getting a sense of how do you use the place to teach well. Um, so, so that's our educator development component of the school. We run two independent schools, uh, one over in Idaho, a pre-K through seventh grade school called Teton Valley Community School. And then the Journey School, which is over here up on this campus in Jackson, that's pre-K through 12th grade school. Both are about 15 years old. Uh, both had roots in a, a charter efforts, public charter efforts, and both didn't work as charter efforts due to local, um, sort of, uh, local challenges with charters at that time. And the, those schools serve, the, the Idaho school serves um, uh, about 80 to 90 students in those grades, and then the, the Journey School serves about 200 kids in those grades. And then the last part is field education. The, 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 there's two programs that are more heavily field education. Those are our uh, science education programs. Students from all over the country come uh, to do three to five day programs. Uh, we have adult education. We have um, we used to be called Elder Hostel, which is now Rhodes mm. a Scholar Program, and so uh, folks that are that are more in the retiree age that come and experience. Um, and then we have Wildlife Expeditions, which works with tourists um, and takes tourists on experiences to understand the ecological sense of place. Um, I think one of the things that's important for us is when we define place, it's really important that we look at the ecological components, the economic components, and the social components. And so we, we, we are non-advocacy groups, so we really uh, approach it with a balanced perspective so that the learners, no matter how old they are, can make their own choices about how they want to make a difference, but they have to understand how communities function. And that's transferable sure. no matter where sure. you are. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about, um, when we first arrived on the Jackson campus today, there were a couple of buses leaving with kids on their way out. Can you tell me a little bit about where they were headed, what they're gonna do today? Sure. So that was part of our elementary school, of our journey school, so part of one of the independent schools that we uh, run. And they're headed out on what they call journeys, that's the name of the school. And they're going out for two days. And um, if you can think of a, a typical field trip that you might have taken as a, a kid in school, we take that, but it's super integrated into the curriculum. And it's really, they go to places and understand those places, just like they do in their curriculum here when they're in, on site here in Jackson. So they're headed out to uh, Sand Dunes National Monument um, over in Idaho, uh, and they are going to camp for a night, and they're going to look at land use issues there, and they'll interview local people and figure out uh, what kind of stance they want to take on it. Um, is there, what is the intersection between the economy of the place uh, that brings a lot of tourists and vehicles that go in the sand dunes, uh, the ecology preserving that area, and then um, sort of the social political aspects is that how do, the, how do the, the local politics interact with that as well. So these are fourth and fifth graders. And after the end of that, they'll, they'll take a stand and write a position paper on this and say, what do they believe? And, and we'll just help them find the facts through that inquiry process. And then they'll work through design to figure out, okay, what will we do here to make it better? What are the challenges that exist here? Kind of mimicking what happens when they're adults. And how often do students go on these journeys? So for these, which are called extended journeys, they do every grade K 
through 12 at Journey School and similar over at Teton Valley Community School, they will go three times a year and they range from uh, the, the kinders who start with an overnight in the classroom. That's oh, their first that's one. Great. And then the, the 12th graders uh, will eventually go uh, down to Central America for a, two, a 10 day trip, uh, an immersion trip down there. Uh, really thinking about, in this case, Costa Rica is where they head. Um, and so, so by the time a student is finished at that, with a journey school experience, they'll have uh, not only a lot of curricular examples that, that are just their normal classes that interact with local places, but they'll have visited a lot of other places to see that this framework is transferable. This idea that you can understand place through three lenses uh, is transferable no matter where they go. So when they go off to college and beyond, um, they can take those skills and figure out where they want to make an impact. Yeah, and that's exactly leads me into my next question, which was um, thinking about a, a kid that grows up going on journeys year after year and learning all of those valuable things through those experiences. What happens when kids graduate? What do they go on to do? Do you have you you know kept up with some of those kids? Sure, sure. And it, you know we have so if you think about our alumni base, it's pretty broad. So we have alumni from our two independent schools. We have alumni from our we have over three hundred alumni from our graduate program. Um, I haven't spoken yet about we have an AmeriCorps program here, and there's okay. a couple hundred AmeriCorps alumni that are out there. Uh, and then of course all of our field education students who come here for short term. So the ones that are easiest to track are the the graduate program alumni and the Journey School um, and the Teton Valley Community School. And I think the, the common trends are, uh, A, they're finding great success in college and university for the, for the um, K-12 alumni. Um, going to all sorts of colleges, depending what's, what the right fit, both academically and financially, it's always important for us and we'll see more later when we walk up there. Um, but uh, they uh, are not all science folks, although one might predict that, but they're in all sorts of interesting things. Um, a couple folks in sustainability, one who works in uh, New Jersey uh, transport area, um, I think for the, the airports in that area under sustainability, someone else who worked for Rio Tinto Mine, their sustainability uh, group for Rio Tinto Mine. Um, we have a bunch of folks that are in teaching and educators, especially from our graduate program. Uh, we find that a number of those folks go back in education, whether public K-12, private K-12, uh, or they go and start their own place-based centers or environmental education centers. Uh, my name is April Landale. I'm the Vice President for Educator Development for Teton Science Schools. We right now are sitting at a historic dude ranch, which is the first home of Teton Science Schools in Grand Teton National Park. And it's stunning here, <laughs> absolutely. So tell me a little bit about what goes on on this campus. This campus actually has a multi-generational program. We have actually, at this moment, second graders from Teton County who are here. We have our local fifth grade program. We also have our adult graduate students who are here for a year-long residency. Uh, interestingly, with the fifth grade program, last night we had a grandfather who was coming to spend the night uh, with his granddaughter and said he wanted to be part of other people's dreams. And it was both for his fifth grade daughter and also that the dream of Ted Major, which one of our faculty took some time to explain to him. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, Ted Major, back in 1967, had a visionary approach at that time to science education, recognizing that the kids learned best experientially and outside. And so he started a summer program <clears throat> in 1967 and then expanded that. And in 1974, that program had a home here at the Kelly campus. So starting with residential field-based uh, interdisciplinary program programming for kids, 
throughout Wyoming and the region, we've now expanded to working with over 14,000 students uh, internationally uh, and nationally and locally. And we, we actually think about this in concentric circles, that we want our home place, our community, to be our first zone of influence and then to be able to expand outwardly. It sounds like um, place-based education then can happen anywhere. Um, we're in an amazing place um, here, uh, but is this something that any teacher, any school, uh, any family can do, regardless of where they sit? Absolutely. Place-based education for me is recognizing how the the natural and human community can can teach you. And it doesn't mean uh, it's teaching necessarily content. It's about how to be a good citizen uh, in your community. And so whether you're a fifth grader who, who is coming to Teton Science Schools for field science education or a graduate student, thinking about how to use those the characteristics of place in their own teaching, place-based place education should be transferable to any community. If a teacher wanted to get started with place-based learning, do you have any um, insights into just even some entry points for them or some small things they can do to get started? I would say first to look within your community. There are so many people who are interested in being part of an educational movement. Uh, think outside the boundaries of your classroom. Look for uh, look for mentors. Uh, Teton Science Schools is an example of uh, an organization that works with teachers around the country, works with communities to help teachers break those boundaries and think beyond traditional uh, classroom teaching and use the, the powerful aspects of place. Great. Is there anything about teaching here, working here, learning here that we haven't talked about yet that you'd like to tell me about? I think the power of community actually is incredibly important here. Uh, whether you're at the Kelly campus or you have a group of classroom teachers who come together for three days, the, the relationships they build, the, the ideas they create, the supports that they feel when they leave, I think are, are powerful aspects of making sure that place-based education finds grounding in their classrooms and their communities. Uh, it's a pretty special place, Teton Science Schools. I'm convinced. One of the things that April taught me when I first got to uh, this place in 1996 uh, was that in order to, to do place-based education well, you do have to understand your own place. And that means going out to explore, to understand what's happening uh, in terms of the ecology of the area, what's happening in terms of the social, political constructs of the area, what's happening in terms of the economy, and really exploring place so that you know it. Um, and as teachers move to new schools or they've been in schools for a long time and only know one part of their community, uh, it's important they get to know more of their community, which then expands their zone of resources that they can bring into their classrooms and connect for students. Yeah. Yeah, and I was actually going to add also that so many of today's youth are disconnected from place. And so in some ways we're modeling a way of living intentionally and authentically in place with the, the idea and the expectation actually that our adult students as well as our younger students go out into the world and, and transfer those skills. So it's more around skill development than loving this place. Yeah, I think we, we talk about sort of if uh, every place is special or no place is special. And what we mean by that is that is that there's not, it doesn't matter what it looks like or what people think of it, is that every place has something that can be connected to learning. Every place is unique. Um, every place has uh, a standard set of lenses that we look at through what we call the place triangle, the economics, ecology, and 
social components of a place, but each of those manifests itself differently. Uh, and so we believe that every place has something to teach us. And then as, as teachers start to bring that into their curriculum, those students and the teachers themselves, we're seeing a double layer here of implementation is that both the students and teachers realize that not only that their place is rich with great, great um, interesting experiences for them to integrate into the curriculum, uh, but also places where they can decide they want to make a difference. And then for me, fundamentally, if we want to create a, a great democracy and a place that's full of active citizens, we must ingrain it through this place-based approach into the curriculum itself. And it can be overlaid with any set of standards and any set of competencies or content is that place-based education is an approach rather than a curriculum that sits on the shelf. So it sounds like it's not something that a teacher would have to add on to what they were already doing. It's not another initiative or another binder. Um, it can be an integrated just approach to everything that they're already doing in their classroom. Yeah, in some ways I think it's a mindset. It's a, it's a conversion of what you're currently doing and then uh, transforming it into something that increases relevance, increases student engagement, and ultimately increases student and teacher impact into local communities, which is what schools should be about. And I would say that teachers are really inspired by this approach because they, they see it as being incredibly relevant to their students' education and it connects them to their community. And for a lot of them, they haven't had that. So as, as Nate said, there's a dual um, benefit. Hi, I'm Nancy Lang. I'm the head of school at Journey School. Great, and tell me a little bit about what place-based education means to you, especially for people who've maybe heard the term but have no idea what that means for them. Oh, that's awesome. It's uh, actually a great question for me because I come from a world where place-based education um, was something completely unfamiliar, um, although I've been in education for 25 years. Um, and so when I first came to Journey School, I think the best way I got my head around this was to think about um, how important it was for children, for students of all ages, to stop and pause and observe and connect with the space that they're in. And that space can be defined very broadly, but it was, um, I would think, okay, if they can stop and look at it and inquire about what's going on, let me learn about this place, whether it's the ecology, the economy, um, or um, the culture of the place, that they're learning about the world around them, not bringing themselves to the world, but bringing that world to them and learning about it. And then, can, you know, extending that beyond to think about what are problems I can solve, how does that connect to my education? That would then translate for them later in life, wherever they go. So as they enter a new community, as they enter a new culture, they would come in with a curiosity and an inquiring mind, and that that would then develop into more. So it's kind of the foundation. Yeah, so we're here on this amazing, beautiful campus. But it sounds like to me that place-based learning really can happen and anywhere and everywhere and for any age, all the way from really young kids up to adults, right? So um, maybe just share some examples with me here from this magical place um, that would apply to a teacher in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, well, first of all, I'm laughing. You say this beautiful place. I just looked out the window and a fox ran by. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Cincinnati, it's funny. I actually lived um, really close to Cincinnati at, at one point. But I think, I think the idea, it applies anywhere because what you're trying to get people to do is to enter 
enter into something that's not their familiar zone. So, and you can do it gradually. It can be a ramp, but you can you can think about this with culture. You can think about this with inclusiveness. How do you enter a culture that's not your own and wonder about it and be curious about it and ask all the right questions and or just ask questions. They don't have to be the right questions, but inquire and try to learn instead of going in and saying, here's what I know, here's what I have, let me see what I can bring and solve all your problems. Instead, you walk in and say, well, who are you? What's your story? What's your community? What's, what are your values? What does the world around you have? So in Cincinnati, you would look at the, you know, it, it's, a, it's not rural like this, but what would you do? You look at the diversity of the cultures in that one setting. You would look at what it is to be a river community. You would look at what is the economy in Cincinnati. And as you look at that, you discover what are the problems that Cincinnati faces. And if Cincinnati's facing problems, children have great minds. They have amazing ideas because they're uninhibited by, kind of, they're not clouded by all that, that they think they know. They just come in with a curiosity and then you start to try to design solutions and make, you know, make proposals and work together with the community. And that's why partnerships become so important, partnering with the community. I think you can do it anywhere. Do you have any um, tips or insights on finding those partnerships? Because I know I was a former classroom teacher and we all had big aspirations for community partnerships. And then in the hustle of everything else you're trying to accomplish, that can often be the thing that kind of gets pushed aside. Like mm -hmm. next year we'll do that, or you know, it's on the, it's on my wish list, but mm -hmm. it doesn't happen. So are there any easy, and I don't mean to say easy in the sense that it's there's a, a magic formula for it, but any just insights that you have into even just a first step for um, forming those kind of community partnerships? Absolutely, I, I think you start small. Um, I think that almost every, I think every community partner I've ever known that we approached or has approached us is very um, interested in education. I mean, education is an in for anybody in terms of, you know, furthering their mission because it's all about educating our youth. So if a school invites a community partner in, I'd be, I'd find it hard to believe they wouldn't be open to that. But I think starting small and looking at your curriculum for the year and looking at what are the connections that are kind of obvious. There are some that jump right out at you. I mean, for instance, you know, last year we were doing, um, there was a unit in the middle school that had to do with, um, that, that connected very quickly to the housing crisis that we have in Jackson. So, and it was fast, it was a quick connection. It was, oh, we're looking at economy. Hey, if we're looking at economy, why don't we look at, um, what the economy of Jackson is, and very quickly they just reached out to the housing trust, and the housing three people from the housing trust came into the school. We didn't even have to take the kids out for that one, and they came into the school and engaged um, in interviews. The students interviewed the the community partners. So I think interviewing is huge because it teaches kids to start asking questions, um, and if you can get the students out to those community partners to conduct those interviews, that's a great start too. Obviously, if you can get them off campus. But the idea is to start small and start with interviews. What you do after that can, can just take off. That's really great advice. Thank you so much. Um, is there anything, um, I, just, I guess I would ask you to just describe what it is about this school um, that you feel is really a core part of its identity or what makes it a really special place for kids to learn? Absolutely. I mean, I, um, I love this school and I moved here because I fell in love with it and what I saw um, was going on on the ground. Uh, I think that its size and its youth allows it to be incredibly nimble, um, but it's not nimble without intention. It, you know, we really think about 
what we're going to pilot. We really think about whether um, a project is connected to our mission before we embrace it, but we embrace pretty quickly. So, for instance, you know, someone will call up and say, "Hey, I'm I, I'm the I run this organization. I'm really interested in partnering with kids." I put it out to lead faculty, and but by the end of the day, I have three teachers calling me and saying, hey, I want to connect with that community partner. So the teachers are very open to being flexible about how they bring um, connections to the curriculum that they have already planned. Um, they're willing to make adjustments in their curriculum because we know that it's not exactly what children learn, it's how they learn. Um, and then the other thing that I think in terms of flexibility is um, all the teachers are willing to help each other out to change the schedule if they need to. So they'll flip-flop classes if they need to, or if a teacher says, I need two hours um, to do this project, the other teachers will say, that's fine, we'll just trade with you and do it on another day. So there's a lot of on-the-ground collaboration and partnership that happens here. Um, yeah, I, there, are, there were a lot of buzzwords happening in education, um, and I come from a place where, where you know, we learned a lot about those buzzwords. We learned a lot about kind of the current trends and, and what was going on and to come into a community that was already embracing them and, and forging ahead um, with some of the things that larger institutions that are older are just taking their time and, and, um, and doing a little bit more gradually, um, albeit just as successfully in many cases. Um, but I, I, I just found that to be absolutely inspiring. It's exciting here every day. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Anything else that you would add? Uh, the last thing I would add, I think, is that what I've become an absolute—I've um, become absolutely committed to this concept of student-centered education. And I think that student-centered learning, learner-centered, learner-centered education, whatever you want to call it, where it starts with the child's curiosity, is such a perfect match for place-based education because it all starts with that curiosity and those interviews. So I, I think all of that together is pretty amazing. And um, I love being in a place where I come to work every day loving my job. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is fantastic. I'm very grateful. Yeah, thank you for having me here too. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and today we're sharing the second podcast from Carrie Schneider's visit to the Teton Science Schools in Wyoming and Idaho. TSS is a partner with Getting Smart for Learning and the Power of Place, a blog series, social media campaign, publications, and podcasts dedicated to raising awareness of the potential of place-based education. Let's turn it back over to Carrie now for some more from her conversations with the teachers and leaders at TSS, who share some examples of really cool interdisciplinary place-based projects and offer their advice on how you can implement place-based learning in your classroom or community. Uh, my name is David Porter. I'm director of the upper school and a faculty member at Journey School. When I think about uh, how we work place-based education into our curriculum, one of the things that come to mind is our spring journeys that we take every year for grades 9 through 12. The grades 9 through 11 students travel to a different community outside of Jackson Hole and we focus on sustainability. So we look at the economic, uh, environmental, and social equity sustainability of those particular communities. We provide the students metrics prior to the trip so that they have an idea of how to gauge the sustainability of that particular place. Um, and we, we introduce these through the math courses typically, um, to some degree through social studies and English as well, a little bit through the sciences. And then we then contract with the agencies in these particular towns that represent some form of that uh, branch of sustainability for presentations and interviews. Students collect data and then 
use the data against the metrics that they have for sustainability. So they get a very good idea of three specific foci within a, within a community to know that place uh, better than they had before. And some of these places we've traveled to, the students have traveled to in the past, whether for athletics or activities that they participate in. So they sort of moan when we say we're going to a town like Lander, Wyoming, a population of about 6,000 people. And then once they really get to see a different side of Lander other than the gymnasium or, or what they might be doing at a school there, they realize, wow, there's much more happening here. It's very dynamic. I had no idea. Um, so we're clearly seeing that once they look at a place from a different perspective, they have a much better understanding of that place. And then we can come back and compare the sustainability of that community with what's happening in our community. For logistics, we typically plan a year ahead just to know where we're staying, do we have transportation, um, what's our budget, and then when it comes to program, we start to plan, the, the trip takes place in the end of May, we start to plan usually in February, uh, thinking about the curriculum and what we want to focus on. Students are then introduced to the sustainability foci sometime in mid-April. So they have about four to five weeks to really think about the, the concepts. And then just before we leave, we ask them to develop uh, further detail, whether it's interview questions, how they want to work as a group to, to, to study their particular focus area. Um, when we return, we build it into our schedule at the end of the year for students to pr prepare their analysis and a PowerPoint presentation that they then give to the community. And we invite parents, the um, TSS community, to take part in those presentations and ask questions. So they're showing their data, they're showing their analysis. Um, in, a, in a fairly formal setting, it's not assessed per se uh, on a grade level. We do give a satisfactory, unsatisfactory grade for these journeys. Um, but we're, we can clearly determine how effective our planning was in terms of the curriculum as well as what the students then took from it. My name is Drew Overholzer and I am the 9 through 12 high school history and social studies teacher. Great, so tell me a little bit about planning. I, I, I look at planning place-based integrated projects in a couple ways. One is living in a place like Jackson, we can explore national trends, global trends, locally, but then we can also look for global issues, so on and so forth, how those are playing here. So it's kind of a two-way, if that makes uh, sense, street. Um, in, in terms of working with other courses, classes, uh, it, there, there seems to be a lot of natural integration between the sciences, social studies, English, and often arts, and sometimes even phys ed. What, what we do is we've gotten to this good pattern, I think, of looking for a time where it's right for all the classes to come together and explore a place-based uh, topic uh, and that it, it works for each of our classes and the, the reason we I think look for one or two opportunities a year is because a lot of the time uh, it, it, it would be forced and, and so we don't want to do that. We want it to be intentional, we want it to be relevant to the students and to feel real and so uh, we, we have a brainstorming session maybe in August, at the before school even starts, we come together, we talk about what, what some of the major themes and topics we're going to be looking at in our classes, and then we start looking at, for connections. And so in, in the past, uh, a um, connecting theme or stream uh, has been water. Another time it's been beasts. Uh, and, and we can define those terms in lots of different ways so it works for different classes. And so then those have led to some really, I think, interesting, engaging, and very much place-based explorations of, of uh, 
uh, of topics that work for all the, the courses. Um, and I think the kids have found those to be extremely enriching. Um, We've talked to several kids, and they have. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the professional learning. Are there intentional blocks of time for collaboration? Is it just something that happens organically? Um, the approach here. Sure. We, we come back to school a good two, two and a half weeks before the students do, which gives us time to do a lot of the administrative work, but we also are um, pretty adamant about trying to set aside time for curriculum planning and that may be what we're doing those first couple weeks of school but it could also be okay we know we want to do a place-based integrated project somewhere down the line let's set aside some time and do that so we that might be the time before school starts where we share themes and ideas and and just get something down and then as the school year progresses we, we do have a weekly faculty meeting uh, we may ask the uh, the head teacher if we can have some of that time to maybe work as a smaller team those classes that are in on that project uh, and then if uh, as it gets closer we may find that we have to spend a little time after school together uh, in terms of both planning the curriculum but also planning say what we call the journeys uh, going out into the field meeting with biologists or writers or ranchers or what have you, depending on the project. My name is Ethan Lobdell. I'm currently the lead faculty of middle school and I also teach high school physics. Um, the project I want to speak about is a integrated project I did two years ago um, and it was with my physics students, my math students, a social studies class, and English class. So students uh, designed a lab that they would conduct on an issue that had some global relevance in social studies class. So for example, what they did, one example was a student was curious about the, um, the uh, sort of uh, the physics of the Panama Canal essentially and the new Panama Canal that they're building and they were looking at how the water is um, retained and changed in terms of elevation to allow boats to move from two sides and looking at the physics of those dynamics. And then they were also looking at issues, the, the social political issues surrounding the building of the new, um, the new canal in Panama and were looking for people to write papers too. So they were working on their writing skills for English class. They were looking at who is um, sort of the agents involved in that project um, in Panama and who they could potentially influence. They were looking at the physics of the project and then within that, embedded in that, was also the math and part of the physics component such that they knew the, um, how to communicate from a mathematical standpoint. So that was a really neat project. Ultimately, their final product was a lab where they tested out some of their ideas in physics class to demonstrate and understand the principles at play. They wrote a one-page math paper to sort of outline the statistical analysis they did. They wrote a letter to a senator or politician that had some sort of international connection to that organization, and that letter satisfied requirements in English and social studies. Our math studies class to analyze the carbon footprint of the old bills um, run here in Jackson, Wyoming, and uh, part of that we created a PowerPoint slide or a PowerPoint presentation where each student was focused on a specific aspect of carbon footprint, so be it the the timing truck that drove from Idaho Falls, the t-shirts that were shipped from Maine, 
the volunteers, runners that um, congregated for the event. They created polls to collect, you know, types of vehicles, carpooling information, distances traveled, and aggregated all that information and converted that information to a carbon footprint. Um, and they gave that back to Old Bills, which was able to utilize that for their certification within uh, a green, sustainable organization and uh, event. So um, students were doing pretty basic math in terms of calculating carbon footprints with regards to um, you know just basic conversions between CO2 emissions and uh, miles per gallon. And, but they're also doing some statistical analysis for extrapolation of data based on a small subset of, of people that were polled that was extrapolated to the larger group of known number of participants. Um, so there are multiple aspects of the math going on there, but it was a great opportunity for students to think about the carbon footprint of the local event. They went to the event also and collected information and data from vendors and from the actual Lower Valley Energy Supplier uh, to figure out how much energy was being used during that six-hour event from the meters that they're plugged into. So I'm curious what they find. They find, I mean, you know, it's kind of surprising. Like some of the things that are, the biggest, the biggest use of energy is like shipping the t-shirts. Wow. Um, and so the people that travel from far away. Um, so mm -hmm. shipping is the biggest one, um, I think. Um, and so each year we keep refining the project and improve on its, uh, on the granularity of our analysis and expanding the ability to sort of have more that they can say about the carbon footprint of the time. Um, is the, it sounds like the design thinking process is embedded in that. Is that an intentional, I mean, I, when I hear you say you're planning it and kind of iterating around it each year, um, is that an intentional thing or is it just kind of just happens, everyone just thinks with that mindset around Sure. Here? I mean, I, think, I definitely think it's embedded in, in sort of what are natural processes of, of improving systems. Um, I think, you know, some of those design aspects are utilized in that iterative process. There's certainly aspects, I think, of evaluating the final products more authentically um, that could allow for a, a higher jumps in that iterative process. Um, currently, sort of once that culminates, um, it's moving on to the traditional curriculum that teachers need to move through or I move through. Um, and then uh, when we come back to the next year and the community foundation and old bills reaches out to us again is when we evaluate it. But our, um, you know, having a full year time period doesn't allow our evaluation to be as authentic as it could be if it was post-event. Place-based learning isn't just for kids in grades pre-K through 12. There's a lot of place-based professional learning on TSS campuses as well. This is Peggy from Maine. She's one of the many grad students on the TSS campuses. After Peggy shares her perspective, Nate and April explain the grad program in more detail. They share how TSS trains teachers to create place-based learning opportunities and the different scales of implementation for teachers interested in getting started. Um, I have uh, joined the grad program after working as a field instructor at the Jackson campus for almost three years and I fell in love with environmental education and place-based learning and realized that I would love to pursue a career in it. What's a day in the life look like for you here? Oh, it varies quite a bit. Um, some days we're out in the field hiking around um, all day from the moment we enter class to the moment we get released for the day. And other days um, we kind of balance some classroom time to introduce some really deep content and then we get to bring it to the field and um, apply it. 
That's awesome. So will you, is this part of a degree program for you? It is, yes. I am in my first year of a master's. Um, I'm working towards a dual master's in science education and environment and natural resources. Cool. Do you know what's next for you after you leave here? Yeah, I am going to hopefully go to Laramie um, and attend the University of Wyoming to achieve that dual master's. So tell me a little bit about the grad program here. So the grad program started 23 years ago uh, with the idea that education can and should be different. We, ha we were having public school teachers come to Teton Science Schools and they liked the, the methodology, the methods of the, the teaching that we provided. And so we began the graduate program with co a cohort of 18 and we now have over 400 alumni. Uh, the graduates will spend a, a year with us in, uh, immersed in graduate academic study and also a teaching practicum. And that teaching practicum is really powerful. It provides faculty mentoring, uh, teaching strategies, and then immediate application so graduate students can apply some of these concepts of place-based education. After a year with us, the graduate students will uh, transfer to other un partner universities to complete their degree. And over the 23 years of the program, we've seen graduates go into a lot of different disciplines. They may get an MBA and start their own school, as we see with two alumni in Maine. They may go into public education. And I think what sets these these students apart is the their ability to inform not just their classrooms but their schools. Um, they recognize the power of, of place-based education and they understand how to negotiate those school systems to be able to advance some of these initiatives. So whether it's independent schools or public schools or non other nonprofits or starting their own nonprofits, our graduates I think feel incredibly empowered to advance um, place-based education no matter what the community or the professional setting that they're in. Yeah. I think we had a couple specific examples from our alum. We just yeah. uh, re uh, learned recently that one of our alumni is working um, at the museum school, which is one of the XQ schools that was just awarded um, as one of the 10 high innovative high schools in the United States to push uh, an innovative idea forward. And again, that's an idea of place-based in a museum rather than in an outdoor space or whatever the case may be. Uh, another alumni, we have a relationship with the Kingdom of Bhutan and we have a number of grad students that have come to us and then gone back to Bhutan and it's parallel to our work that we do in the, the, the um, country of Bhutan uh, with teacher training and they are playing an important role in curriculum development and, and trying to take the curriculum in Bhutan and reconnect it to Bhutan rather than uh, rely on the Indian system of education which is what they've done for the last um, number of decades. And so we see, see real impact with this, what we call the multiplier effect is that it's not only important to, to teach students, uh, but it's important to teach teachers as well. And so we do it through our grad program, we do it through AmeriCorps program, we have a couple hundred AmeriCorps alumni, which are shorter duration experiences. Um, we will take student teachers uh, at Journey School, often there'll be grad students that'll come through with us. Um, and then we do consulting work with schools around the country and say, how do we help all of you teacher, how, how do we help teachers in general uh, take their curriculum, no matter what the discipline is, and flip it and convert it so that it's better integrated with place to give both students and teachers more agency in their learning. Can you talk a little bit about sort of scales of implementation or a continuum of a starting point all the way up to a, a full 
a school community built solely around PPE. Yeah, for sure. So, so um, when we think about implementation with schools, um, we there's a couple different levels of implementation. I think uh, the first is how April described it as teachers might come here and say, this is an interesting place. I see my students engaged, they're learning more. How can we do that more in our own classrooms? Um, and so they'll then go back to their classrooms and, sit and talk about the experience. Um, at that point, we might do a teacher workshop here on our campus and we work with just about every district, public school district in the state of Wyoming and all sorts of different projects uh, and in regional states and, and bring in teachers for workshops to directly working with place-based education in various aspects of it. Um, we've also started working with more full implementations of uh, districts or schools as a whole. So in St. Louis, we work with uh, um, two districts and, and one independent school at this point where <clears throat> Uh, in those schools, um, we'll go and work with a cohort of 20 to 25 faculty, and then we start working with them over a three-year period. And so there's a, a year one, introduction to place-based education and starting to convert curriculum. Year two is development of leadership and implementation of how this looks. And then year three is strategic vision and planning. How do you make this beyond our work with the school? It's really important that we work ourselves out of that, those school districts and so that it permeates and is, is fundamental to that school culture and the school curriculum so that when we leave, it just doesn't go away because unfortunately that happens with too much PD in the world. One of our transitions that we've been working on as we, as we understand place-based education over the last 50 years is that um, uh, we are transitioning from uh, being just focused on the ecological sense of place and to really adding in all aspects of place. So the economic component and the social component, political, um, and cultural components of place, all those are critically important. And we, as we started two schools, have tried to become and, and, and really interpret place-based education as a much broader perspective. Um, and it's been good work for us and allows us to really think about how every teacher at any school can implement place-based education, not just the science teachers or the teachers that are dealing with natural spaces. But my hope is, you know, when I'm on my, on my deathbed and I look back on sort of what the science schools has done is that they will have, uh, um, they'll have this, we'll start to see that all of our alum in some ways have been impacted and had this sort of sense that, oh, this is how communities function. And whether it's in sort of a beautiful setting like this or a beautiful downtown New York City or a rural area that's impoverished or, like, it doesn't matter every like I said it's every place is special um, and every place has something about it that we can impact. Place-based education is is so synchronous to being focused on the learner um, that's a super important component is that the learner matters and that if we can teach learners to understand their worlds which is fundamentally the idea of school and and then go make a difference which is we sometimes miss in our schooling I think oftentimes we miss in our schooling is that kids can be change makers. We don't have to tell them how to do or, or what avenue they have to do that in, but we have to give them all the tools to do that well. Thanks to our partners, Teton Science Schools, and to the dozens of educators who have contributed great guest blogs to our PBE campaign. You'll find all of those by clicking on series and then place-based education on gettingsmart.com. You can also follow and join our campaign on social media with hashtag place-based ed. The landing page for the full Learning and the Power of Place campaign is gettingsmart.com slash place-based education. That's where you'll find all three publications on PBE, an overview with definitions, benefits, and examples of PBE, and two quick start guides to implementing place-based learning and professional place-based learning.
Thanks to Carrie Schneider for producing this podcast and to Andrew Luck for making it sound so good. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Kat and Megan signing off. Thank you.